Hola. You might be wondering what you were listening to just now. Any guesses? Let me fill you in. That was the sound of an exhibition called Panorama. It's a six-minute film displayed on 10 screens at the Bio Museo in Panama City, Panama. It sounds wild because it is wild. It's all about Panama's biodiversity. As one of the world's most biodiverse places, meaning there are lots of different plants and animals hanging out there, it makes sense that such a museum would be in a place like Panama. What might not make sense is what I was doing there. To explain that, we'll have to go back 10 years. I'm Kiara Powell, and I'll be your guide to Padma, a six-episode podcast about the Penn State College of Communications 2017 International Reporting Class. Here's my first interview with our professor, Tony Barbieri. Hi, Kiara. Hi. How are you? Good, how are you? That's recording, by the way. That's recording? Yeah. I came here today to, if you have time, ask you seven questions. Do you have time? For seven, not eight, though. Tony is a funny guy. He spent 35 years working as a journalist, 10 years as a professor, and 9 years so far teaching this particular class. He says it wasn't started on a whim. Well, there was a need for it. Two things happened. The university, 10 years ago, decided to put on a big push to have more study abroad for students. But they realized that not everyone can afford an entire semester in Italy or Spain. So they began to look at promoting more of what are called embedded programs, which is what our class is. So we go away only for a week or 10 days, but it's not the full semester. The second thing that happened was both the dean and the department chair at the time decided journalism students in the college needed more exposure to the world than they were getting. So international reporting was born. We're not training you to be foreign correspondents. We're training you to have a more global outlook, um, broaden your horizon, you know, maybe Something is happening here in Allentown, but maybe the reason it's happening is in India or China or France. Tony knows what he's talking about. As a foreign correspondent for a decade in places like Moscow and East Asia, he learned lessons that he tries to pass on to students like me every year. The class only happens in the spring because we take our embedded trip over spring break. But more on that later. Let's revisit last fall. International reporting is not an easy class to get into. There's actually a whole process behind it. Around September of each year, there's a meeting for anyone interested in the class, which is geared towards juniors and seniors with preference given to the seniors. At that meeting, Tony introduces the course, talks about the destination, which is always the million dollar question, and introduces the other professors that will all be going. I also distinctly remember from my own meeting, Tony saying, if you're looking for a fun last spring break before you graduate, this isn't it. If you want to spend 10 days drinking on the beach, don't apply for this class. This class is very hard work, and we treat you like professional journalists. What he said wasn't false advertising. Aside from the threats of no fun, also at my meeting was a sign-in sheet for attendance that had one little question at the end. Do you speak Spanish? Well, I didn't and still don't, so I checked no, and in that moment figured I wouldn't make it very far. Obviously, I was wrong. There's so much more to getting into the course than just speaking the right language. So after the meeting comes an application process, which includes writing samples, a resume, contact information for a faculty member willing to speak about you, and a written statement explaining why you want to join the class. If that goes well, then you'll be interviewed by Tony himself. 
My interview was interesting. Tony isn't the type of person to ask you questions that can be answered by your resume or what your greatest weakness is. He's more likely to ask you about how your day has been, what your hometown is like, where you've traveled, if anywhere, and why. He says he does this to get to know the people and their personalities. That's how he's able to tell if they'll be right for the class. And the first and the most important step we take is in September when I'm choosing the class, I don't choose knucklehead. I don't choose people who look like they're going to make bad decisions and, and do something stupid. Though the interview may be more casual than one would expect, it's still an interview. In mine, Tony and I discussed how I was still a little green as far as broadcast experience goes. He told me, there are people with way more experience than you, but I think you're more interesting. But, as everyone knows, you can't get by on just personality. So I brought up my recent experience in podcasting. We talked about how it could be something new for this class, which previously supported only students doing print stories, photo stories, or broadcast packages. We agreed that a podcast could be a totally cool new opportunity, but there were problems to be solved. First, there was the obvious barrier of language. If I did a story in Panama that included Panamanian locals, there was a high chance they'd be speaking Spanish. How do you make an audio-based story with parts of it in a language that not all listeners may understand? Then there was the trouble of who would help me while we were abroad. Every year, multiple professors go on the trip to help students with their stories. This year, there were slated to be three, but none of them were as well-versed in podcasting as I would have needed. Ultimately, Tony felt that doing a podcast was a good idea, but the execution was going to be difficult. In the weeks following my interview, there were talks with my podcast professor at the time, Katie O'Toole, and conversation back and forth with the Dean of the College of Communications. Dean Hardin was actually the faculty member I put down on my application as willing to speak about me. After their talks, I got an email from Tony. He said it was going to be a tough decision. In the end, I obviously scored a spot in the course, one of 16 available. Katie was also brought on to help me with the podcast before, during, and after the trip. Hi, Katie. My official job became documenting the course for the spring 2017 semester, and that's led me to here, in the first international reporting podcast ever, talking to you. Why Panama? I always get asked this. Initially, we started with the idea that we would go to Asia one year, Latin America, and Africa. I think the great stories are in the developing world. The class has been to South Africa and Greece one time each, and China three times. This trip was the class's fourth to Latin America. We've been to Brazil, and we've been to Mexico, and we've been to Cuba. So where else is there? Well, Panama struck me as really interesting because they just had the canal uh, refurbished and reconstructed. They're having a lot of political turmoil there, and it's an easy place to work because uh, Panama City is a very international city. By that, he means the locals will have seen foreigners before, so we won't have to worry as much about sticking out. It's cheap. weather's good. At least it's warmer than it is here. So all these are reasons that go into planning. Tony isn't the only one who plans where we go each year. This class and the trip embedded within it are both group endeavors. So, Tony gets input from others on where to go. One person with good recommendations is Helene Eckstein, 
a Penn State alum from what was then called the School of Journalism and is now the College of Communications. She's one of the donors who helped make international reporting possible. Helene is the type of person who makes me say, I want to be like her when I grow up, even though I'm already in my 20s. Here's the backstory of how she got involved with Tony's class. Well, there were some very bright people at Penn State. And there was this woman, and her job was director of development, which means they're people who get alumni to send money. And she had seen that I had given quite a nice contribution to the College of Communications. Not like the huge things that you guys get, but a nice one. She said to me, Hi, Helene. There's somebody who I think you would click with immediately. I think you should have lunch with him. And we'll come and meet you, and the two of you are going to hit it off. I know it. And he's starting a new class, and it's your thing. So I met with her and Tony. And Tony told me what it was going to be. And I said, wow, this is incredible. I think it's a fantastic idea. I want to support this. It's people like Helene who help cover hotel rooms, flights, and other costs associated with the course to help make it possible year after year. There's so much that goes on before we can leave. The first half of each semester is dedicated to hashing out story ideas and completing group projects to learn more about the country we're visiting. We're also reminded of everything that could possibly go wrong thanks to representatives from risk management who visit the class. That's the university's way of making sure that we know how to keep ourselves safe in a foreign country. Risk management people ask questions like, if a fruit vendor standing on the side of the road says, welcome to my country, thank you for coming, I want to give you a piece of fruit, your choice of a banana or an apple, free of charge. Do you take the banana or the apple? The answer is banana. Did you guess correctly? Since the skin is thicker, it's much less likely to have been tampered with, and is thought to be safe to eat. Free fruit aside, we also get visitors who are citizens of the destination country or who have at least been there before. This semester, we got to sit down with Felisa Preciado, a Penn State professor in the Smeal College of Business who was amazing to talk to. Born and raised in Panama, she knew firsthand the good and bad things we'd be dealing with during our time there and was able to tell us about them in great detail. For example, one of the unfortunate things about Panama is the disparity between the rich and the poor, one of the widest in Latin America. Felisa said that gap is obvious when walking around in certain places. On the other hand, one of the good things she told us about is how Panamanians are extremely welcoming of foreigners and would be very friendly with us almost to a fault. Her first-hand advice was invaluable. Aside from Felisa, we also had members of the Penn State chapter of Bridges to Prosperity stop by. Their organization builds footbridges over impoverished rural areas across the globe. They've built three bridges in Panama so far. Two of their club members told us all about their experiences in Panama and things we should look out for, like avoiding the drinking water in rural areas. Being made aware of local quirks and customs like that ahead of time from others is priceless. You know what else is priceless? The Fixer. A fixer is often a local from the country you're visiting, 
usually a freelance journalist of some sort, who can help you with a bunch of different things. From understanding local customs, to finding story ideas or sources, to helping you connect with an interpreter, your fixer is there to help you understand the country you're in, so you can focus on the story. My first impression of our fixer was, wow. Young and handsome with round glasses and a full beard was not what I expected, but it was definitely a nice surprise. My name is Alfonso Grimaldo. I'm your local Panamanian advisor, basically. I've worked as a liaison between you and the local contacts, depending on what each of you needed. Before that, I helped you guys develop ideas for different storylines. But after you arrived, it was mainly getting the contacts and interpreters, and then just making sure um, none of you went into red zones or died. So far, successful. This was just a side position for Alfonso. He also works full-time. I am the co-founder of Nueva Nación, which is a digital journalism platform for data journalism in Panama, the first of its kind. Alfonso said he got the job as our fixer because his Nueva Nación co-founder referred him to Tony for the position. I had never done something like this before, but I, I have a very um, engaged entrepreneur spirit. I like opening companies, I like stuff like that, so I thought, hey, if there's a demand for this, I might as well structure something up. And there I talked to Jacob, he's a very good friend of mine. He had an idea like this about a year ago, like, hey, we should bring college students to Panama, but to do internships. So I immediately contacted him and said, I think the universe is throwing us a, a chance to get this started. So we took it. And what do you think so far? It's been pretty fun. I mean, it's been great to get to know you guys. And also, it's been great to give out all these ideas that I had about possible stories to you guys. And it's also been very interesting to get your perspective on the country, because I'm very much in the business of development of the country. So I'm always interested in hearing outside perspectives. Alfonso says he's glad the class chose to visit Panama because it's important for Americans, especially students, to experience another country and learn how the United States' actions affect other nations. I took it upon myself to make sure that you guys, since you are going to be journalists in the 21st century, with Russia on the rise, China on the rise, and really we're starting to see an escalation in tension in the world, it's very important for you to be aware that it's not just local news that are important, but it's also what are our generals doing about keeping uh, the situation safe in Eastern Europe? Or how are we making sure that radical Islam is not going to be a problem for the Western Hemisphere in the long run and stuff like that? So I think being a U.S. citizen is a very high responsibility nowadays. So that's why I wanted to like impress upon you that fact. It was nice to have Alfonso looking out for us once we got to Panama. But of course, we still had to look after ourselves. Some of that work would take place before we even left in the form of vaccinations. You know, the vaccines, it seems like such a small thing, but it's, it's not because the most important thing to me is your health, that you come back safely. So it's different for every country we've ever been to. Some don't need vaccines at all and some you need three or four. Panama has historically had um, a lot of health problems because of where it is. It's, it's climate. Uh, so, you know, this is more of a challenge with malaria, with yellow fever, with typhoid, and all this other stuff. Then, say, when we went to Greece, which is like going to Pittsburgh. We were all advised to get vaccines. Typhoid, yellow fever, and malaria, with a just-in-case supply of anti-traveler's diarrhea pills. This was all in addition to being up-to-date on tetanus and hepatitis A. 
When you get vaccinated, those drugs come with many a page of instructions, so you know exactly what you're taking, how to take it, and when. Of course, there's always one person who misses the memo. This time, it was one of my classmates, Matt Martell. Yeah, I didn't have a good experience with vaccinations. I went to the doctor in December when I was home for Christmas break. He told me he wanted me to take malaria pills. He prescribed anti-traveler's diarrhea pills and he prescribed typhoid pills. So Sunday, I was supposed to start taking the typhoid pills. I guess the prescription for typhoid pills was supposed to be one every other day for four days. That's what my doctor told me. I go to take the, the typhoid pills, I look at the bottle, the label says take twice a day for 10 days. So I was like, maybe my doctor you know, uh, told me the wrong thing or ended up giving me a different medication for typhoid than what was previously expected to be given to me. I don't know. So Sunday morning, I take the pill. Sunday night, I take the pill. Monday morning, I wake up. I'm going to take it again twice a day. Take it. Around, I want to say 11, I feel really nauseous. And my head starts spinning. The nausea goes away pretty shortly after, like around, I want to say 11.30. All of a sudden, I'm talking to my friends. I went down to the, the student newspaper, Daily Collegian's office, and I was trying to get work done there before my class. And, and they say, you sound funny. I was slurring my words. I was very, very loopy. And I'm thinking to myself, crap. Did he actually want me to take it once every other day for four days or twice a day for 10 days? I wasn't really sure. Matt tells me he tried to call the doctor's office on Sunday when he first wasn't sure about the dosage, but they aren't open on Sundays, so no one answered. He tried to call again on Monday, but everyone was out to lunch, so no one answered. So he lies back down and waits since he has an appointment with a different doctor at school to get his yellow fever vaccine. If you're keeping track, he's at three pills in less than 48 hours at this point. I get to the doctor's office, I tell him what's going on, and he's like, oh, by the way, what was the name of that pill? Matt couldn't remember at first. He said the name, and I said, yeah, that's it. And he goes, that's the traveler's diarrhea pill. So I had been taking an anti-diarrhea pill as it was prescribed had I had diarrhea. But I didn't have diarrhea. So all the side effects were magnified. Matt said this was the most panicked he's been the entire semester about this class. I've never taken typhoid vaccine pills before, and I guess I still have. I was kind of freaking out about the whole thing, but we got it squared away. False alarm. We're good. He didn't end up needing a refill on the pills because he was already prescribed 20 of them, which according to doctor number two is way more than anyone should ever need. So Matt still has 17 left. He also swears that he took precautions against this sort of thing. I googled both drugs to make sure I didn't confuse them. The traveler's diarrhea pills, they're also meant to treat typhoid if you have it. So when I searched into WebMD, it came up as a typhoid antibiotic. So I'm thinking, all right, vaccine, antibiotic, whatever. The doctor actually said, if you had taken the typhoid pills at the same time as the traveler's diarrhea pills, they would have canceled each other out because the traveler's diarrhea pills would have killed the typhoid vaccine anyway. I don't know. So a lot of confusion. So, back to work. Our last class before we left was a little bit of a 
wow, we're really doing this moment for all of us. Tony took the time to give a pep talk. So keep in mind, for this week, you are real foreign correspondents. You are not kids pretending to be. You're going to be doing exactly the same thing that foreign correspondents for the New York Times and the BBC and CNN are doing the same week that you're there, wherever they are. You may not have the audience they have, but you're doing exactly the same work. Pretty inspiring stuff, right? But Tony always knows how to keep us all with a level head. And what does that require? It requires a brain, two ears, two eyes, and the ability to ask questions. There you go. That's all it takes. Of course, he couldn't send us off to finish packing on that note. This is a great adventure, I think. As I said, I did this for 10 years, and there wasn't a single day when I didn't wake up in the morning and pinch myself and think, oh my goodness, are they really paying me to do this? Uh, I'm not saying that I, the whole day lasted like that. <laughs> <laughs> But really, there's nothing more fun than doing this kind of thing. It's very stressful, it's very hard. But it's a lot of fun and it's a great experience. And so the experience begins with a bus ride from Penn State to Washington, D.C., and a flight on to Panama City. So when Panama emerged from the sea, the biological forces made this last connection between North America and South America, and that moment it started many events, for example, the migration of the species. Find out why Panamanians feel responsible for the rise of civilization, next time on Potama.